This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. For more than three decades, James M. Olson served with the Central Intelligence Agency. For some of those years, he served the nation as the Director of Counterintelligence. He served in the Directorate of Operations and also served previously for decades in field service. He and his wife, both agents for the Central Intelligence Agency. For over 20 years now, he's been a professor of the practice in the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University. Professor Olson has authored two books, the first, Fair Play, The Moral Dilemmas of Spying, and the second, most recently, To Catch a Spy, The Art of Counterintelligence. The entire field of espionage, spycraft, and counterintelligence raises a host of Christian worldview issues that make this conversation one you will not want to miss. Again, I'm looking forward to this conversation with Professor James M. Olson, and soon you'll understand why. Professor Olson, welcome to Thinking in Public. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I have been looking forward to this conversation for some time, because in my, my view as a theologian, the questions related to warfare in general and, uh, and then to espionage or to spycraft raise some of the deepest questions of Christian moral understanding. And uh, I have turned to your first book, Fair Play, The Moral Dilemmas of Spying, uh, for years now, and have cited it in in writing, and uh, and then uh, I, I did so fairly recently on the briefing. And one of your former students actually said, "Well, you should talk to Professor Olson himself." And so that opened the door for this conversation. And then, in light of your second book that came out just a matter of uh, about a year ago, "To Catch a Spy: The Art of Counterintelligence," um, Professor, uh, you have lived one of the most interesting lives that uh, I I could imagine. Yes, it has been an interesting life and a very fulfilling one, Dr. Moeller, because I felt that I was serving a cause I really believed in, the security of our country. So I really uh, am honored to have had that opportunity. And now I have, I think, an equally fulfilling career as a teacher of the next generation. Well, you are a teacher and a teacher with an unusual background, and I believe your title is Professor of the Practice, uh, which is a very interesting uh, academic title, and I say that as president of an academic institution. It usually is followed by something like the practice of, but uh, what exactly uh, is the practice of which you are professor? I am a professor of the practice of intelligence. We have an intelligence studies program here. It's a master's level two-year uh, program for young men and women who aspire to careers in intelligence. It's a fine program at the Bush School. We're very proud of it. And we are sending our graduates into some really exciting and important careers out on the front lines of the intelligence community. It is one of the first programs of its kind, kind of outside the Washington ring, to become a, a major center for the uh, the teaching of national intelligence. And yeah, I think about the fact that your the school in which you teach uh, at Texas A and M, the uh, the George H W Bush School, is named not only for the forty uh, first president of the United States, but a man who, prior to that, was director of the Central Intelligence Agency. And uh, then you had a, another director of uh, the Central Intelligence Agency who was president of the university. So. 
uh, sounds a bit like a conspiracy. <laughs> you've done your homework. Yeah, you've nailed us. Yeah, we have uh, very fine connections with the uh, the Bush family. We have fine connections with uh, Bob Gates. We have been in this business for quite some time now, and it's it's about time that there were competitors in this field and intelligence studies outside the Washington, D.C. Beltway, and we're in. And we are, I think, recognized already as one of the premier institutions of this kind in the country. President Bush was very proud that we were doing this. It was uh, his vision from the beginning that we would send our graduates into these kinds of careers. And we've lived up to his vision. We've uh, carried out that mission. And we're sending quality young people into these careers uh, every year. You acknowledge in both of your books that spycraft or espionage um, will invoke some very serious moral questions. And uh, in your first book, Fair Play, The Moral Dilemmas of Spying, you, you actually set out uh, so many of these explicitly, and I think with a lot of intellectual honesty. One of the things that you acknowledge is that it comes down to whether or not one will do spycraft or not. You write, I will concede that spying is a dirty business. But my question is this. What's the alternative? No intelligence? Should we abstain from lying, cheating, deceiving, and manipulating and do without the intelligence they produce? Should we unilaterally discontinue espionage and covert action operations overseas? Should we put all our trust in overt sources of information, diplomacy, and the peaceful arts, and hope our enemies will not take advantage of us? Is that the real world? Would that be safe? Well, you raise the question. I did raise a question. It is something I've thought a lot about because my life was a paradox in many ways because on one hand, the most important things to me in my life are my country, my family, my honor, and my faith. But on the other hand, I spent my entire CIA career lying, cheating, stealing, manipulating, deceiving. So that's the issue that I wanted to deal with. Can those two points be reconciled? Can a man of faith conduct himself in such a way that he is engaging in those things. You know, when Meredith and I, my wife was also in the CIA, by the way, when we launched into this career, we had to make an upfront rationalization. We had to say, all right, as people of faith, we know that we will be doing things we would not ordinarily be doing, the lying and cheating and so forth. But we sincerely believe that we're doing those things for a greater good for the legitimate defense of our country. And I can tell you that throughout our career, even though we engaged in some things that sometimes bordered on nasty, we did not see any conflict between what we were doing in our faith or our moral code. You know, we devoted our lives, Dr. Mueller, to protecting our country against totalitarian, evil, oppressive, atheistic communism. And we thought we were on the right side of that. And so we had no qualms about doing what we had to do uh, for our country. If we're going to defend our country against the evils that are out there, we can't go out there with our hands tied behind our back. We've got to fight tough. And that's the issue. How tough is too tough? When do we cross the line? When do we betray those values that we're fighting so hard to defend? When do we become them? And that's kind of the point that we had to discuss uh, throughout the book. Uh, in reading your first book, uh, as a 
theologian trained in ethics and uh, teaching and writing in the area of ethics, uh, I found myself thinking some things I had not really thought through before along these lines. And, and you don't address the issue so directly in your book, so I want to address it rather directly with you. Uh, the background to most Christian moral thinking, and, uh, and you're, you're Roman Catholic, uh, and uh, you, you write from that perspective, and, uh, but let's just say the classical Christian tradition, which I as a confessing Protestant and you as a Catholic would, uh, would share, and, uh, and that would include uh, Thomas Aquinas and uh, his kind of quintessential developed theory of just war, when, when a war is just, both before a war is fought, the conditions for war, and then the conditions of war. And uh, I've, I've struggled with this for a long time. It, it strikes me that your argument comes down to the fact that, uh, looking at Thomas's definition, uh, you were acting in a way which was defensive uh, of the good, uh, in a context in which the good was actually proximately threatened. Yes, I think that's accurate. Uh, that's the way I saw it. And I do believe that the just war theory does apply to us in the intelligence community. If it could be morally acceptable, as Aquinas said, to kill in the legitimate defense of our country, it seems to me that it should be morally acceptable as well to lie, cheat, steal, manipulate, coerce in legitimate defense of our country. That's a hard set of words for Christians to uh, to just let go by quickly. But I think one of the strengths of uh, of your character and your, uh, your your candor is you're willing to use those words straightforwardly, because without those uh, without those very moral acts or immoral acts, there is no spycraft. No, not at all. Uh, spying has always been based on deception. You know, I look for guidance from the greatest of all sources, the Bible. And we all know the story from the book of Joshua about how when Joshua was conducting his campaign for the conquest of Canaan, he's standing before Jericho. And he sends two spies into Jericho to gather intelligence on the defenses. And he, the spies are sheltered, protected, hidden by the prostitute Rahab. And thanks to Rahab, they survived. When the king's men came looking for them, she lied about their whereabouts. They were able to return safely to the Israelite camp. And I think it was because of their intelligence, to a large extent, that the campaign was successful. And we also know that in return for her kindness toward the spies, her lying and deception to protect the spies, Rahab and her family were spared when the Israelites took the city. I asked myself, all right, we know that Rahab is one of the great heroines of Israel. And if spying were inherently evil, why would she be honored and blessed for protecting the spies. So that gives me a lot of consolation. That gives me a lot of belief that what I'm doing is morally justified. Because there is biblical history there. Spying, as you know, is ancient. It goes back to biblical times and before. And so I refer to the story of Rahab often 
in my teaching to kind of put some perspective on the fact that, yes, spying is ethical, spying is moral. In the history of Christian ethical theology, there are different ways of approaching ethics, uh, even given the same biblical and theological commitments. Um, there's the deontological, that is an act is inherently right or wrong according to an external moral reality. And, and I think that's where most Christian ethics is, is located. There's the teleological in which it's measured by its, uh, its end. Uh, more recently, things like consequentialism and pragmatism. Um, I would, I'm very offended by merely pragmatist arguments. And I think some people uh, hearing a, 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 an attempted defense of spying and espionage might hear a merely pragmatic response. But uh, let's go into the weeds here just a moment. You, 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 and I both teach, so let's uh, let's let's just do that for a moment, as you have been. So, in the Christian tradition, I think one of the most important ethical insights is that the alternative to um, to moral relativism or mere pragmatism is uh, is some kind of uh, of ethical absolute. And one of the principles of Christian thinking has been non conflicting moral absolutes. So we don't believe that God in his uh, sovereign majesty has commanded contradictory uh, acts. But a serious Christian has to acknowledge that we find ourselves in situations where even affirming non-contradictory moral absolutes, we are not sure what is absolutely right. And, and you know, I, I'm uh, speaking to you from Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, this split the Baptists in, uh, in Kentucky uh, during the colonial era. And uh, it came down to the question as to whether you could lie to Indians, Native Americans identified as Indians at the time, uh, if they demanded to know where you had hidden your children with the uh, ambition to take them. And it actually split the Baptists. The Baptists actually divided into two different churches in which you had the, uh, the honest Baptists and the lying Baptists were the way it was done. And, you know, the amazing thing is just about every Baptist I know says that theologically they think they're supposed to agree with the honest Baptist, but as parents, they would actually do what the lying Baptist did. And, and, and I, I think that is a, a microscopic picture of uh, the worldwide quandary of espionage. It certainly is. And I often ask my students, what are your moral absolutes? And the students will say, well, I would never kill anyone. I say, well... You're a soldier. Our country is being attacked. You are a parent. Your children are being threatened. Could you kill to protect your children? Well, you're right. Yeah, there are exceptions, right? Would you ever steal? No, I could never steal anything, but how about to feed your family? How about to steal the secrets from an enemy? Would you ever lie? No, but we all tell white lies. And there are occasions, as you mentioned, where lies, I believe, are the only course of action to protect human life. So it's always kind of a gray situation in our world. My world of spying and covert action raises some particularly esoteric moral issues. We face them every day. And that's why I wrote the book. I think the ordinary life of people also has those morally conflicting questions that you described. Um, and how we deal with them, I think, uh, requires us to rely on our faith, our conscience. Uh, but it's very, very hard to say that some courses of action in the abstract 
could be construed as morally wrong, but when put into the circumstances of the case, I think they become not only justifiable, but in some cases necessary. For Christian theology, the 20th century was uh, a horrifying test case for Christian ethics. And uh, the ethical consensus that was kind of taught in a facile sort of way, simplistic sort of way, before the Second World War uh, fell apart uh, after the Second World War. Now, I think part of that was catastrophe, Professor. I think uh, the rise of, uh, of a relativistic understanding of morality and uh, kind of out of protest atheism just emerged from exhaustion, moral exhaustion, and uh, from just the horror of the Holocaust and everything else just uh, becoming more than many people in society wanted to have to take intellectual responsibility for. But uh, amongst uh, Christian theologians, and this would include uh, the entire world of, uh, of those identified uh, as teaching in the Christian field, uh, the, the reality is that the consensus developed that there are at least some principles that are involved here. And, and one of them is the, the mandate to save life and to preserve life. And so uh, if you are in a situation, the argument came, where there are conflicting absolutes, you cannot kill, you cannot lie, you shall not uh, deceive, etc. Um, but there are situations in which you also have the command, you must preserve life. You must protect the, the widow and the orphan. And, 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 and at this point, it, it comes down to something like a Reinhold Niebuhr would say, it's, it, it, it's the least worst thing to do. But I think the honesty is, and this is deeply Augustinian, uh, you know, and we would share, I think, a great affection for Augustine. Uh, Augustine would say that there are no sinless acts, even of the purest motives. And I think that's good for us to keep in mind as well. It's a humbling realization. Yes. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, that motive is kind of a key in whether or not we are acting in a moral way or not. I certainly would support your view about the sanctity of human life. And I saw what I did in my career as protecting human life. How many American lives, for example, have been saved on the battlefields against terrorist attacks because we had superior intelligence. Many, and I think that's a morally good. But how did we get that intelligence? We got that intelligence because we had spies out there who were practicing deception, who were stealing the secrets, who were suborning foreign citizens to get the intelligence from them, lying, manipulating, coercing in some cases. And I believe that that all goes together as a great good for the ultimate objective of saving lives. That's kind of the overriding goal, I think, of those of us who are in the intelligence career, those who serve our, serve our country. We're out there defending the lives of our people. And that's, I think, an honorable thing to do. I agree it's an honorable thing to do. But you're not merely saying that the end justifies the means. It's close, you know, and I don't want to be labeled a utilitarian, but a lot of the means that we use, let's take some examples. Targeted killings. Waterboarding. Blackmail, seduction, 
are ugly things in the abstract. But have they saved lives? Have they been for a greater good? By waterboarding Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, how many American lives did we save? How many terrorist attacks did we thwart? By killing Osama bin Laden, assassinating him extrajudicially, didn't we, in effect, render justice? Didn't we prevent anything that he was planning, he was planning in the future? And a lot of people objected to those acts, and I understand why. But as I point out in the book, and you cited that, what if we had not engaged in those activities? What if we had refrained from collecting that intelligence? Where would we be? And I think that's an unacceptable alternative. I believe that when we go out there, we've got to have the tools at our disposal to match the evil forces that we're fighting against. I think, a, yeah, I, I would just offer, it, at least as a contribution to the discussion, the fact that uh, in a fallen world, if we take sin seriously, uh, I think the Christian has to acknowledge that these things will happen. They do happen. Uh, they have happened. Uh, they will continue to happen. Uh, and at the same time, we believe that there are certain actions that are categorically morally wrong. And I'll just say, I think waterboarding is one of them. Torture is one of them. And of course, that raises a whole host of definitional issues, but you mentioned waterboarding by name. Uh, but I have to admit, and, and that's why I didn't join any of the statements about these issues, because I felt like they were detached from taking moral responsibility for such statements. I, I, I think the fact is that under some circumstance, virtually every person I know would either have to take responsibility for the deaths of people or for this categorically wrong act. And the, the thing that amazes me is that you and your colleagues put yourselves in the position of knowing you would have to make those choices and, uh, and, and take such actions. Yes. It's not a comfortable position to have to be in, but we do have to make some very, very serious decisions. And quite often when we're out on the street of some foreign capital, these dilemmas present themselves unexpectedly, very quickly. And that's why it's so important that we recruit people for the intelligence community, that we find people who have a good, strong moral code, that they are inclined to make the right, ethical, moral, Christian decision when the circumstances present themselves, because they don't have time to consult. And it's really unfair after the fact, I think, for people sitting back in Washington to say, you went too far. You should not have kidnapped that person. You should not have waterboarded that person because it's easy to say. And our people were doing this with the best of intentions. Um, waterboarding is nasty. I hate the fact that we had to do that. But... It's easy to take the moral high ground and say, we're not going to do that. And of course, the Obama administration decreed that we would not do it anymore. That's fine. Tell us. We won't cross the line. But we have to realize that when we refrain from activities like that, and I would contend 
as my good friend and colleague Jose Rodriguez wrote in his book, Hard Measures, that waterboarding these three people did save lives. And the, these people were not permanently harmed, the ones who were waterboarding. And so that's kind of a horrible calculus that you have to make weighing the lesser of evils. But I take the position that in an extreme case, with preferably judicial oversight, we should not take enhanced interrogation off the table. If we have an imminent threat to our country, lives are at stake, we know the information can be extracted that can save those lives, and that enhanced interrogation is the only way to get it. Um, that's a horrible position to have to state, and I'm not proud of it, but I believe that in the greater good, you can make that case. Well, it's a horrible context, and uh, I find myself recoiling a bit at even hearing you speak, but uh, obviously with respect, and I think about this, and I think, well, I mean, that could be used to eventually justify just about anything. I know you're not saying that, but eventually it could be used, at least in the most extreme situations, to justify acts beyond what I think you or the CIA or your uh, in, uh, allied intelligence agencies would uh, would undertake. Well, Dr. Muller, let me ask you this. Uh, waterboarding is bad, but it does not kill. Well, that's actually where I was headed. I, I wanted to say many of the same people who would who would say this conversation is not even legitimate, would acknowledge the need to kill. And this is short of that. So forgive me, I, I, I was setting it up to acknowledge that, which is why this is a very respectful conversation. I deeply respect uh, your, uh, your candor. I, I'm just being equally respectful to say, I, uh, I, I wonder about myself sometimes thinking about this. You know, I, I'm, I find myself in the position, I think, of a lot of Christian citizens are saying, I could not do this, I think. But I'm glad you and your colleagues were, uh, to use a movie metaphor, you know, they're on that wall. But as you know, and you've already said in your book, I just want to make very clear, is really clear about this. There are boundaries. So let me put it in history. Uh, you spent so much of your time in spycraft uh, on the field at great risk during the Cold War. And so just let me ask you bluntly, uh, tell us the difference in the basic worldview on these issues between, say, the KGB and the CIA. It's a world difference because the, the KGB is an atheistic organization. It has no moral constraints. If it furthers the objective of the Russian state, they do it. We know Vladimir Putin is a killer. We know that they are ruthless. They have absolutely no bounds. Even worse, of course, are our terrorist adversaries. Their only objective is to kill Americans whenever and wherever they can find them. We're different. We have boundaries. We have laws. We have moral limits. There are things that we would not do. And I think that that's something we can be proud of yes. as Americans. And there well, are accountabilities in our system that are completely absolute. And that we are the most moral intelligence service in the world. I mean, look at our good friends, the Israelis. The Israelis are fighting for their survival as they see it. And they have engaged in some very, very ruthless activities to protect their people and to preserve their state. And I have I have respect for what they're doing, and I understand what they're doing. They do things that go beyond what we would do. 
Yes. But, well, and that, well, that was true at the beginning of Israel. I mean, is, is, Israel had to, uh, the Jewish people there in, uh, uh, they're in what we now know as Israel, uh, had to undertake actions beyond anything that, for instance, took place in the American Revolution, uh, given the context, otherwise there would not be a nation of Israel. Yeah, the Israelis, I mean, I worked with the Mossad in my career, and they're tough. Uh, they don't have these moral debates to the extent that we do. Uh, that's, I think, a uh, difference in our two situations. Uh, they're surrounded by enemies. Um, and so I think that they have been able to justify some extreme measures that uh, go beyond what we would routinely do. But if you ask the average American, Dr. Mueller, would you, did you approve of the assassination of Osama bin Laden? I would suspect that even Christians would have a majority in saying, yes, it was justified. Here's a man responsible for the deaths of 3,000 plus Americans and many more. Um, so I don't see any moral outrage uh, that we took that action. Um, but I think I, th I think you're absolutely but, right. I mean, the only outrage that really emerged from that uh, came in uh, more academic form, you might say, or ideological form, but without having to take any responsibility. And that that's a part reading both of your books. And and I guess I really was impressed with this more by your second book, To Catch a Spy. Um, I mean, we, there there have to be in a, in a in a world like we inhabit with uh, the the dangers that are out there. And at one point, you say that more than eighty different nations have uh, have applied espionage against the United States, including, as you acknowledge, our own allies in many cases, but far more perverse intent. Um, someone's got to take responsibility for this, and this is an ongoing tension in in our own. Um, experiment in constitutional self-government. It's, it's been a tension from the beginning. Yes, that's true. And for most of our history, as you know, there's been an aversion to spying. The view was is that this was not quite American, that we Americans are different from the old world that have had uh, long traditions of espionage and covert action. And it really wasn't until World War II and the threat of the Nazis and the Japanese that Americans said, all right, we're going to have to do some things we have not done traditionally in the past. And the Office of Strategic Service was a very, very hard-hitting, uh, ruthless organization when it had to be because the stakes were so high. And look what it was up against with the Obvair. Exactly. The Obvair, uh, the, the Japanese, uh, Nazi Germany, the things they were capable of. We talk about evil personified. And so the American view was to accept kind of the, the nasty business of spying, our squeamishness about spying that had historically been true of America was pretty much dissipated because of the Nazi threat. And then, of course, right after World War II, the new threat emerges, expansionist communism. And so there was an acceptance that we need to maintain those activities, the covert action, the espionage. Uh, and there and were two issues, if I may raise them historically, that may help uh, those listening to this conversation to connect to this. Uh, one of them was the historical fact that Pearl Harbor represented an enormous failure of American intelligence. 
And I think uh, virtually any American leader would have to say, we must plug the hole uh, in our, our national defense. It was represented by the fact that as you document in your second book, To Catch a Spy, the, uh, the Nazi networks were talking about Pearl Harbor. And if the Americans had just picked up and listened to what was available to them, they would have understood that this was not a coincidence. The second example. Go ahead. Go ahead. It's a great example of the consequences of poor intelligence or low intelligence. And I would uh, dread an America where we didn't have advanced warning. And the advanced warning comes from your intelligence community. You're on behalf of all Americans. But we're out there collecting this intelligence for you, for the American public, to protect you. And that's, that's why we go into this uh, career. Uh, without intelligence, we would be, I think, probably have been destroyed already. You know, if we didn't have good intelligence on the Soviet Union, it wasn't for, preordained that we would prevail in the Cold War. But I think our superior intelligence protected us. It also prevented some cataclysmic outcomes. You know, what if we had not had good intelligence on Berlin in '48? or in Cuba in 62, or in the Middle East in 73, or Europe in 83, intelligence averted what could have been a nuclear Armageddon. And so I think intelligence has been a cause for good over the years, and I'm, I'm proud to have been part of that. There's also an, a, a flip side to that, just a, the second historical case I'd point to. And uh, as a college student, I got to meet Edward Teller um, and I'll never forget Teller saying that the greatest failure he thought uh, of the United States was to uh, prevent the espionage by which the Soviet Union uh, was able to develop, basically steal nuclear secrets to develop, first of all, the uh, an, an atomic bomb and then a hydrogen bomb in, in uh, what was a, uh, a tragically short period of time. And uh, that, that stuck with me ever since I was a college student. Right. One of the great failures of American counterintelligence was the ease with which the Russian could steal, which should have been one of the most protected secrets ever, the atom bomb secret. We let our guard down. We were so intent on fighting the Nazis that we allowed communists into the Manhattan Project, into Los Alamos. Uh, our screening of government employees, our clearance process was totally deficient. And so people got in who were fellow travelers, who believed that an American monopoly on atomic weapons would be destabilizing the world peace. I think that's very misguided. But to a large extent, we did it to ourselves. And I would agree with Edward Teller that that was a horrible, historic failure on our part. But the Russians inevitably would have had the bomb themselves because science always moves in just one direction. It, uh, it proliferates, it expands. But we allowed them to have the bomb a lot earlier because of their ability to steal it from us than they would have otherwise. Well, and Teller's and point was that that was tremendously injurious to the freedom and liberty of so many in Eastern Europe, because it uh, even as the Iron Curtain, as Churchill said 75 years ago last week, even, even as the Iron Curtain was up, uh, before the Soviet Union had nuclear weapons, there was still the opportunity for some tactical pushback, but all that disappeared. I think that's an excellent point. I think it's historically valid. A, a nuclear weapons capable Russia was able to 
assert its domination over those poor enslaved people in Eastern Europe much more forcefully because they had the bomb. They had deterrence. They could keep the Americans from intervening because of the fact that we had that uh, nuclear equivalence. Uh, and the poor people of Eastern Europe, uh, I mean, I felt so badly throughout my career uh, the fact that they were living that, that horrible, horrible enforced regime. And you were posted in places during your uh, foreign service years in the, in the CIA in places such as Vienna, where you were, you were uh, able to witness this firsthand uh, there to your east. I did. I was on the doorstep of Eastern Europe. We had a lot of Eastern European refugees coming through. Uh, we saw firsthand what communism was doing to those people. And Dr. Mullen, also lived in Russia. And so I saw, I saw what the Russian communist system was, what it did to its own people, the cruelty of it, the oppressiveness of it. And what that did was just reinforce my conviction that I was doing a good thing by fighting that, by dedicating my life to it. And uh, my wife and I would do it all over again. And I have no reservations about my role in preparing these high-quality young people at the Bush School of Texas A&M to come in behind us, to follow in our footsteps, to go out there and do dangerous things in dangerous places to protect the American people. I think it's a, it's a fine thing that we're all doing here. And the truth is, I've never known finer people than the people I served with in the United States intelligence community, people of honor, patriotism. I think it's probably not well-known that the, a place like the CIA is very faith-filled. You know, we had, we had Bible studies at CIA headquarters. We had cleared ministers and priests and rabbis who could come in to minister to our people. We were probably, probably violating some law of separation of church and state, but hey, we're the CIA, we're going to do what we want. But it was important to us to allow that, that connection between faith and service to our country. I think that they're compatible. Uh, Professor, I, I have to raise an issue that takes us a little deeper here, at least, at least in my mind it does, because we've really been talking mostly about intelligence, spycraft, and, and I think amazingly candid conversation. But you are actually at Langley for the CIA, Director of Counterintelligence. And uh, as a Christian theologian, uh, I'm not debating whether that's right or wrong. I believe it's it's necessary. But nonetheless, it takes us into even darker corners. Can you talk about that just a bit? When you're talking about counterintelligence, you're talking about a, a, a ring inside of intelligence that takes us deeper. And I, I think it'd be helpful to have that defined for us and to hear you speak of it. Let me start by defining what counterintelligence is. Counterintelligence is the discipline within intelligence that has as its mission to thwart, to prevent the activities of foreign intelligence services, to suborn our citizens, to steal our secrets, to hack into our databases. It is a defensive mechanism to protect the American people from the depredations from abroad. We live in a very dangerous world. And today we are under assault from the Chinese in the first place, 
from still the Russians, from the Cubans, from the Iranians, many other countries. And as you pointed out, even so-called nominally friendly countries are trying to steal our secrets. That's our job in counterintelligence, to prevent all that from happening. Counterintelligence takes you into a world of deception, into a world of illusion, a world of manipulation. And you can lose your bearings in that world. And you can, in fact, get into a very dark place. You're aware of James Jesus Angleton. He was a director of counterintelligence for 20 years at the CIA. And he fell prey to the paranoia, the lack of trust, the righteousness trap that what he was doing was so righteous, so important for the defense of our country that he could cut some corners, that he could violate the law even, that he could ruin people's lives. And that is a horrible abuse of counterintelligence. When I took over counterintelligence, one of the first things I did was to establish a training course for all of our counterintelligence officers. And I called that my CNA course, or my ANA course, I'm sorry. Angleton, never again. And I wanted to make certain that people who were in intelligence kept their moral code, stayed within the law, did not fall victim to that paranoia, which is kind of an occupational hazard of counterintelligence. And I think we were successful in doing that. You can do a good job of counterintelligence without betraying the, the principles of our country. Uh, James Jesus Angleton, that character you speak, who kind of pioneered counterintelligence uh, from within the American intelligence community, was such a dark figure. It's a uh, it's very interesting to read your account of the one meeting you had with him as a young officer when he sat in his dark office surrounded by smoke and all you could see was the reflection in his eyeglasses. That's a, that sounds like a, a James Bond movie. Yeah, it was a bit of a movie. I'll never forget it. I was struck by how this great mind, and he was a great mind, this brilliant counterintelligence officer had gone off the deep end. He was no longer in touch with reality as I saw it. It was apparent to me even as a very young junior officer. And it's, it's, it's funny, Dr. Mueller, because as I was excoriated by him for not being able to see through the machinations of the Soviet communist system, some outlandish conspiracy theories that he had, as I left that meeting thinking my CIA career for which I had such great hopes was dashed forever, I mean, how could I withstand being treated that way by one of the giants of our profession. I walked down the hall and I said to myself, I don't know what this career will lead to if I somehow survive it. But I know one thing, I'm never ever again going anywhere near counterintelligence. So it is a bit ironic that I ended up being the actual director in that same line as Angleton. I wanna talk just a bit about that, but first I want to note that uh, you in your your work on counterintelligence here, what you call the art of counterintelligence. There's a lot of morality in, in, uh, in, in what you argue. And uh, I was very moved by uh, something that uh, I later discovered that your wife had said to you. Uh, and again, she, uh, who was uh, an agent for the, the CIA as well, 
and uh, you serve together as a tandem couple or a tandem team, at, at least for some years. But she, when you received the uh, the invitation to the post as director of counterintelligence, as I'm paraphrasing what I understand your wife to have said to you, uh, that she said, uh, do it, but not for long. That's right. Yes. When I got the message from the director when I was out in Vienna as chief of station that I was being asked to go back to be take over counterintelligence. Mary and I went out for a walk that night so we could talk openly. And Meredith was familiar with the reputation of counterintelligence and what it did to people. She knew the Angleton experience. She didn't want her husband to fall into that trap. And so that's why she said, knowing as she did what it could do to people, good people, she said, okay, Jim, if you really want to do counterintelligence, fine, but don't stay too long. And that's actually one of my 10 commandments of counterintelligence. You go into this field, don't stay too long. I require that my officers rotate in and out repeatedly to kind of recharge their batteries, to ventilate their minds, to get a different perspective. Because a steady diet of counterintelligence, that arcane, murky world, that you have to live in in counterintelligence can be very detrimental to your mental health. Well, I, I felt it was detrimental to my mental health at risk just reading your book in the, in the sense that <laughs> I had to ponder things. Uh, and, and so I, I, I will tell you that uh, I, I, I think even in this conversation, it's clear that you are neither paranoid nor cynical. Thank you. But I, I think I'm okay. I'm not sure. Some people <laughs> might disagree, but I, I think I'm all right. Well, I, I will tell you that uh, I, I knew from talking with others, including uh, those who uh, had been your students over the years, that you are neither. But it strikes me that there would have to be some incredible internal compass and commitment to prevent one from becoming paranoid, utterly suspicious, and cynical uh, through that kind of service. I mean, you, you were dealing with matters of life and death. Yes, exactly right. Uh, and you talk about a moral compass, let's just call it faith. Without faith, Meredith and I could not have done what we did. It was always there. It gave us boundaries for what we could do in our professional and personal lives. And beyond that, Dr. Muller, it gave us strength. This was a dangerous profession. I lost a lot of friends and colleagues. What Meredith and I did was high risk. There were operations where I was not absolutely certain I would return. But when I was out there in the most dangerous of circumstances, underneath Moscow in a manhole, some of the other real dangerous spots around the world, doing things that could have been life-threatening, I could literally feel his protective presence. I knew I was not alone. And I can't tell you how much consolation that was, how much strength it was to know that he was there with me. It's indescribable, but we could not have done what we did without that, that faith behind everything that we were doing. We were being protected. I have no doubt about it. Um, and speaking of the the what was at stake, uh, uh, two things I want to ask you about here. But the first of them is just to to 
have you uh, make clear to folks what was at stake. You look at uh, failures of counterintelligence leading to the deaths of dozens of uh, American friends uh, within the Soviet Union. And even more recently, as recent as I think 2017, report about uh, a failure of counterintelligence leading to the deaths of uh, American uh, agents in China. Yes. Yes, uh, there are fatalities in this business. It's, it's not a game. It's life and death. And many courageous, many fine people lose their lives in this enterprise. Americans and those foreigners who are putting their lives in our hands by cooperating secretly with us. And you're right, it was tragic that we lost so many of our agents in China because of treachery from within. It's, it's tragic that we lost so many Russians. Russians I worked with personally, people who were working with us for ideological reasons, fine people. Some were secret believers, and they were betrayed. I worked personally with Aldrich Ames at the CIA, a CIA officer. He sold out to the Russians. He gave them the identities of all those Russian spies that were working with us, condemning them to a certain fate. Basement of Libyanka, on your knees, bullet fired through the back of your head. And I can't think of a lower form of human life than someone who would do something like that. Uh, Rick Ames is in prison. Uh, I often think of the of Dante's Inferno and the ninth and deepest level of, of hell, circle of hell, is reserved for traitors. And I think that that's a good place for them because I have nothing but for contempt for people who could betray our country on behalf of another uh, another country and to do it for money, which they all did. Yes. Uh, you are echoing there none other than uh, General George Washington. Yes. Yes. You've done your homework. That's exactly right. Uh, George Washington was ahead of his time. And he said that what he dreaded above all was their spies, speaking of the British spies, and that we need to do everything we could to detect them and to prevent them from stealing our secrets. So, yeah, that's kind of the marching orders for us. It started with uh, Washington. Uh, he was a great spy master. It kind of fell into desuetude over the years, unfortunately, where we did not have an effective counterintelligence uh, program until, as I said, World War II woke us up that we had to get back into the business. And uh, just just to make an historical note, we weren't much better at policing internally in terms of uh, uh, intelligence, uh, even something such as the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Again, a massive failure of intelligence internally. Uh, and so, I mean, we went, we went a very long time without anything like either the FBI or the CIA. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. And, uh, you know, where would we be without them today? I shudder to think what life would be like for for us Americans without those fine people in the FBI and the CIA out there doing their jobs every day. Professor, okay. uh, I uh, I found just as a a human being, a father, grandfather, uh, just a really uh, urgent moment of looking at your life when I realized that uh, going to the Bush School now over twenty years ago, you had to come out of uh, the CIA world. 
And uh, in doing so, and I find this I find this almost impossible to believe, though I know it's true. I'd love to have you just talk about it. You had high school children at the time, and they did not know that both mother and father were spies. You had friends who had been walking life with you for decades who did not know that you were spies. You were evidently very good at this. What was it like all of a sudden to go from one world into another? It was traumatic. Uh, Meredith and I had never wanted to come out from undercover, and a lot of our colleagues uh, retire undercover and never have to reveal the fact that they've been living a lie, that they've been leading a double life. For the 30-plus years that Meredith and I were on active duty, we were undercover. We were living that lie. My parents did not know that I was in the CIA. Meredith's parents did not know. Our children did not know. Our friends did not know. But we had to be very, very careful about protecting our cover because our effectiveness in our job depended on the integrity of our cover. And also, and I don't want to over-dramatize this, but it is true, our personal safety and the safety of our families depended on our cover. So we were very, very serious about protecting our cover. When we came out from undercover, as we were required to do, to come to a university, the CIA requires us to come out from undercover. We cannot be on a college campus covertly. If I'm going to teach intelligence at the Bush School uh, with President Bush as my mentor and, uh, and, and, and colleague down here at the Bush School, I've got to be out from undercover. Our first concern was those diff the difficult conversation we'd have to have with our parents. Would they be hurt that we'd been lying to them all those years? And both sets of parents, Meredith and mine, reacted independently in exactly the same way. You know what that was? Thank you for not telling us sooner. <laughs> they said, when you were all those foreign countries, we would not have wanted to know that you were in the CIA and have to worry about what it was that you were doing. We told our children because, and this is in the book, we had a death threat in Vienna from some Iranian terrorists, a death threat against me personally by name, Meredith personally by name, and against each of our three children. And that was frightening. That was real. Uh, the CIA actually offered to pull us out of Vienna because of the death threat to the children. It was really Meredith, a, a remarkable woman, kind of contrary to all maternal instincts, who said no. She said, we've been sent here with a mission to perform. We're not going to be chased away by ugly letter from some terrorists. So we stayed and finished our mission. But that was the time when we felt that because of the death threat to the children, we needed to bring our oldest into the picture. He was only 16. So we sat him down in an acoustically secure room. We said, listen, Jeremy, mom and dad are in the CIA. There has been a death threat against our family. We need your help. That's kind of a lot to put on a 16-year-old. You've got to watch out for your brother and sister. Be alert to your surroundings. Jeremy reacted with pride, and as we'd hoped he would, and he did a good job of watching out for his, his younger brother and sister. And with his help and a lot of other precautions we put on the children, we were able to stay and finish our assignment in Vienna. And then when they were a little bit older, we were able to tell our other two children, uh, Joshua and Hillary, the truth. They reacted with pride, too. And if you guys just a minute, Dr. Molly, I would like to say how proud Merit and I are of our three children. Jeremy, the oldest, went on to become a United States Marine Corps officer and then went into campus ministry, which he felt called to do. Our second son was a United States Navy officer 
and our daughter is a missionary in Ethiopia. So we're very proud that our children have all chosen careers of service to others in one form or another. We're very proud of them. Well, I can only imagine. And uh, I, uh, I appreciate you sharing that. And frankly, I just appreciate the generosity of heart in which you share so much of this uh, in, um, in your writings and in your teaching. And uh, I hope I didn't come across as an ogre or as a monster who spent his life doing all these nasty things. But I did not see them as nasty. I saw them as necessary and legitimate defense of our country. I saw them as consistent with the just war theory. Yes. I saw them as consistent with my faith and my moral code. Well, you're very uh, courageous and generous to share all that with us. And uh, I, I do not have conversations with ogres. Uh, not willingly anyway. Uh, Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yes. I mean, that's a very low threshold, but I will tell you that I, I am very honored by this, uh, by this conversation, your willingness to enter in this conversation. And, uh, I, I, I owe you a great deal just in terms of helping me, me think through some of these issues. And I want to return to that in just a moment, but before I, uh, we bring this conversation to a close. I, I just want to say that I'm also very moved by the fact that you and your wife are both deeply involved in the pro-life movement, and uh, I appreciate that as well. Yes, it's very, very important to us. Uh, I was the founding chairman of the board of 40 Days for Life. We've been involved in other pro-life ministries. Uh, it is, we believe, the moral issue of our day. Uh, and so we're very, very committed to that, as I know you are. And I would like to say also, Dr. Morrow, that I appreciate everything that you do, being such a voice for, for faith and morality. And I use your book on leadership in my classes because I think it is so rare today, unfortunately, that you make that connection between leadership and moral character, that the two are inseparable. And I believe that that is a wonderful lesson for my students and for anybody who's interested in effective leadership. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. That means, uh, means a very great deal to me just to hear that. And uh, I do want to say thank you to you, especially for this conversation today and for all you've contributed uh, in, in the generosity of your teaching and, and writing. And by the way, I want to say thank you on behalf of my own son-in-law, Riley Barnes, uh, formerly <laughs> Deputy Assistant Secretary yeah. of State who was a, is a proud graduate of the Bush School and, yes, he is. and so yeah. many others. And uh, I just want to say thank you on behalf of a grateful nation. I, I, it's, not, uh, it, it's not that I can speak for the entire nation, but in a sense, I want to just to say thank you. And uh, thank you for the, uh, the liberties you defended, uh, for the nation you love, for the sacrifices you made, the risks you took, uh, and for the, uh, the courage to speak uh, to all these. Thank you. It was an honor. Many thanks to my guest, Professor James Olson, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you'll find more than 100 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.